Why do some last when others fall? Why, why do some last when others collapse? This is one of the most important concerns in human societies. From ancient philosophers to modern business consultants, this is a driving question. Why do some things that humans build endure while others leave little positive impact? William Fortnum was a footman in the household of Britain's Queen Anne. Uh, he noticed that the royal household threw out very large quantities of wax every day. You see, the royal family got brand new candles every single evening. So the old ones, even if they had a lot left, were thrown out. So Footnum William Fortnum pertained permission to collect these partially used candles, and he resold them for a pretty nice profit. He took all the money he made in that profit, and he opened a store. The store did well. So he invited his landlord to join him in the business. His landlord's name was Hugh Mason. So in 1707, they <clears throat> opened the first Fortnum and Mason store. Most of their money was made blending teas, uh, including the Queen Anne blend, which they still sell at the store to this day. And by the way, it is delicious. It's really good. Uh, speaking of today, as a private company, Fortnum and Mason don't uh, release financial information. But 300 plus, plus years later, the business is very strong. Let me just tell you this. Their business is so strong. Here's just one example. A few years ago, they remodeled the entire London store. They did a complete remodel, 25 million pounds it cost, and they paid for every penny of it from cash. All right? In 1951, a Canadian grocer named Garfield Weston, he paid an enormous sum for the company, for Fortnum & Mason, and his heirs still own the store today. When he was asked why he wanted this company, Weston noted that Fortnum & Mason had done such a great job establishing the business that it was, and I quote, built to last. In fact, he was so impressed by them that he installed this clock in Piccadilly. You can still see it today. Every four hours it chimes, and Mr. Fortnum and Mr. Mason come out and bow to each other. It's really, it's really quite cool. Now, Compare that, okay, compare that to another store that Garfield Weston purchased, same time period, 1950s. Uh, this was a U.S. grocery store. It was called National Tea. It had been founded in the 19th century by the Rasmussen brothers in Chicago. If you grew up in the Midwest, you may have heard of National Tea or their later name, National Supermarkets. That's the name Garfield Weston gave the stores National. Anybody here from the Midwest remember National Supermarkets? Okay, a few of you do. Mr. Weston, though, was bothered. He, he was concerned about National. He felt like there was something fundamentally wrong with National's DNA. So he bought up another chain and combined it to try and change the stores a little bit. And, and that didn't really go the way he wanted either. So he wrote this to his board. He wrote his board and said, Men of the board, I propose we sell National to a competitor. Even though the company is flush with profit, I don't think the chain is sustainable. Close quote. In response, Weston's company sold National. The company that bought National, A&P, went bankrupt. And they went bankrupt partly because of the high leverage in that purchase. It turned out Garfield Weston was correct. Now, unlike Garfield Weston, most humans are not especially good at discerning which things are truly built to last. In fact, we frankly are rather bad at it. And not surprisingly, people are not very good at building to last either. Whether we're constructing lives or families or, or companies or communities or churches, humans struggle to build to last. Which explains why there is an ever-present stream of expert books and podcasts and etc. that promise to make each of us into Garfield Weston, right? But over time, if you've read a lot of these popular books, you've noticed the principles in those books always deliver less than promised, and sometimes they turn out to be anything but lasting principles. 
for example, describing one of the best-selling books of all time, which, is, which has got something to offer. It's not a bad book, so I'm not going to say which it is, but one of the best-selling books of all time. Dr. Richard Verney, uh, he's a professor of strategic management at Dartmouth's Tuck School of Business. He says this, and I quote, it's so slippery, it's like grabbing a frog. To take this book or any business book as gospel is to set yourself up for a fall, close quote. So what can one do? If even the best-selling, one of the best-selling books of all time that purports to show somebody how to build to last, if that can't be taken as gospel, then, then where can one turn to find true sustainability? How about the real gospels? How about turning to the only source that Garfield Weston treated as gospel? Yes, he was a brother of yours in Christ, and he believed that Jesus' gospels and the rest of Scripture contained the principles needed to build to last. The Bible was Sir Garfield's lifetime guide. Yes, he was knighted. And by the way, the Bible is the only place to turn for understanding the principles of building to last. It was a biblical worldview that led to the three major emphases of Weston's empire. Uh, when you get to know Sir Garfield Weston, you learn that these were the three things he built his business on. A solid, unshakable core business that was needed for every organization. Then practices that were centered on serving others and a humble willingness to learn and to adapt. That, friends, is how one builds a sustainable enterprise. Solid, unshakable core business, practices centered on serving others, and humble willingness to learn and adapt. Of course, I know you, and I know that sparks a really important question in your mind. In your internal uh, Hercule Poirot, you, you are asking, Ah, mon ami, that may be true for organization, but what about the psychology of the individual? Huh? How does one person build to last? Great question. Thank you for asking, Poirot. Thinking on this a great deal as I study Scripture, I have concluded that the issues are the same whether one is building a company or a life. Here they are, three main requirements to build a life of positive, lasting impact, a trustworthy core, a heart to serve, and humility. Whether it is a corporation or a soul, these biblical issues are what make the difference. Now, turn that over. Let's, let's turn it over and consider the negative. Look at my summary I put in your notes. You got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. On the left-hand side, you'll see my little summary there. I write, I have noticed at least one of these three factors in every shipwrecked Christian. Unbiblical theology, isolation from service or fellowship, and self-assurance. Sadly, I have seen quite a few shipwrecked Christians over the years. And every life not built to last has one or more of these three factors. Unbiblical theology, isolation from fellowship or service, and self-assurance. For example, years ago I was on a board with two other Christians. They were on this board with me. And we were building a great organization. It proved to be a great organization. I just want to look at these two Christians for a moment. One of them was very humble. He was very humble regarding the organization. He was very humble regarding himself. The other was very self-assured. He was pretty certain he had the perfect formula for life down, especially in his personal life. Now, let's fast forward to now, many years later. That first Christian continues to thrive, even though he has gone through horrible personal storms. Really, really difficult storms in his life, and he is thriving. By contrast, the second man abandoned his family, he shipwrecked his faith, and he spent years wallowing in sin, isolation, and pain. Do you see the difference? Unbiblical theology, isolation from service and fellowship, and self-assurance, these things shipwreck a life. Trustworthy core, heart to serve in humility, that will see you through. Are you with me? 
Okay, then let's get to the meat of God's plan for making his people into his church that lasts. It all starts in the gospel, the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, it starts with the promise in chapter 16. Open your Bible to Matthew, if you would please. First book of your New Testament, pretty easy to find. Just before Mark, right after Malachi, or as my friend Tom Nelson likes to say, Malachi, the Italian prophet. Um, <laughs> chapter 16 of Matthew, let's start at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Mm. Son of Man is Jesus' favorite name for himself. It's the title he uses most often for himself. Now, when you read it, uh, it seems like it's describing humanity. It's actually an exact opposite. Um, if you look up Daniel chapter 7 and the other Old Testament passages that use it, it's a statement of deity. Son of Man is actually a statement of, of equality in the Godhead. Uh, so, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you're blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. Peter is a, is a he grabs a Greek word here, Petros, it means rock. It's a, it's a new nickname he gives him. You are Petros, and on this rock I will build my church, and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. Though the location of this conversation and the person of Peter are really important for today, just for today, let's, let's focus only on the thing that Jesus promises to build. He promises to build his church. Three things jump out to me from this text. First, Jesus is the builder. I know that sounds obvious, but we are very forgetful about this. You see, we tend to forget that it is the triune God who builds lives. We overfocus on our responsibility, not remembering that anything of enduring merit must be built on Jesus Christ and His Word. Otherwise, you know what happens? Pride eats away our building plans. That's what happens. Here, let's do a quick check. Let me, let me just show you. Um, let, let's look at a few of the images used for Messiah Jesus in the Bible. And I think you'll see a theme that runs through the images God uses to try and describe Messiah Jesus to us. If you know the answers, holler them out. Jesus is the what, everybody? The vine, right? And he says we, and it's true, we, like branches, die if we are not connected to the vine. We can bear no fruit. Jesus is the what, everyone? He's the cornerstone, very good, or depending on how you translate that passage, the, the keystone. Either way, it's the keystone that holds it up or the cornerstone that holds up the, the building or the arch. Uh, Jesus is the what? Okay, I see it written up there, but what does that mean? Alpha and Omega, what does that mean? Beginning and the end. It's the first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Everything is contained in him. He is, the, he is the summa. He is everything. Here's one. This one's a little hard. Take a look. What is this? Jesus is the... Very good, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, description in the book of Hebrews of who he is. Okay, the idea is pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus is the builder. He's the prime mover. He is the author. He is the one on whom everything stands. Second point, the ecclesia is Jesus' church. This is so cool. The Greek word employed in Matthew 16 is ecclesia. It's a very significant term. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say ecclesia. One, two, three. Very good. Ecclesia. When Matthew recorded Jesus' statement, I will build my church, he chose a wild term for church. It's a secular term, which is really surprising because there were a number of religious terms that could have fit. He chooses a, a secular term. It, it means a, it means a uh, called out or called together assembly. When a teacher 
calls on certain students to come up and join a study group. That's an ecclesia. Um, those who are called out are, are the assembly uh, of the chosen. Same thing happens when, when you're on the sandlot and captains choose their, their members of their team. That the people on that team are an ecclesia. This is radical. Jesus is saying he's going to build a called out assembly like that. And get this, it's not racial. You see, in the classical world, all of the other terms that are similar for this, they carry an idea of race. Ecclesia is a classless, raceless term. That's why churches are never hyphenated in Scripture. You notice that? Jerusalem is an ecclesia. So is Antioch, and they're both part of the grand ecclesia of Jesus. Jerusalem is not the first Messianic Jewish congregation of Jerusalem. Antioch is not the Antioch Syrian congregation. They are both just ecclesia. Further, this is a, get this, it's a qualitative term. It is not a quantitative term, not in any way. Nowhere else where it is used in Greek literature does it have anything to do with quantity. It always has to do with quality. A very large gathering is one ecclesia, so is a group of three. Here's what matters for ecclesia. The, the assembly is measured on how they perform, not their size. Ecclesias are measured on how they perform. The size is not their measure. But wait, there is more to this significant term. As an assembly, ecclesia was used of a unified group. The ecclesia is a place of unity. But listen, listen very carefully. Ecclesia was not about enforced unanimity, okay? That's what the word means. God selected it for a reason. Unity, not uniformity, not unanimity. That's ecclesia. One last point to really understand what Matthew is saying. Ecclesia members, this is kind of difficult, but follow me here. Ecclesia members are, are both completely free individuals and they are bonded into a marked relationship. I, I know that seems tough, but this was very important to the Greeks who crafted this term, very significant to them. The assembly is comprised of people who each retain their individual identity and yet they are in a very real way connected with each other. The, the best example I can give is a, is a really large American family reunion. Because in American family reunions, you tend to see people of all kinds of different colors and places and stations in life, and, and they all feel some kind of connection that the whole clan shares. And yet nobody there loses their individuality merely because they share a, a heritage or a name. All right, put it all together. Jesus will build his called-out assembly. It's not racial in any way. It is qualitative, not quantitative. It is unified, not uniform, and these are free individuals in connection with each other. What Jesus builds and what he leads is totally new. This is a gathering of people he calls who are related, although they're not related racially, who are free, who are united, and who are measured by quality. All God's people said... One of the catchiest attempts to relate Ecclesia came from uh, these two guys, Peter Furler and Steve Taylor. They wrote a poem called He Reigns. It goes like this. It's the song of the redeemed rising from the African plain. It's the song of the forgiven drowning out the Amazon rain. The song of Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation. A love song born of a grateful choir. The Ecclesia is Jesus' choir. That's what he calls together. And what Jesus builds, third thing, it will not be overcome. Look at the end of verse 18. The forces, I will build my church, ecclesia, and the forces or gates of Hades will not overpower it. Sure, it's cool that Fortnum & Mason has lasted 300 years, but that is nothing compared to the ecclesia of Jesus. It has flourished for 2,000 years and will not stop. 
to understand how really significant that is, let's roll our minds back through history, just real quickly, just for a moment, okay? Those of you who are really young, you don't, you don't know this, but in the late 20th century, we were told that the churches of Jesus Christ were doomed. I, I, I cannot tell you how many times we were told that. People noticed how Africa was absolutely seething with conflict, and it was. In, in Asia, Christians were being slaughtered by the hundreds by governments. Uh, Western European state churches, they were dying. There was an iron curtain that separated Eastern Europe. Muslim lands were closed to the gospel of Jesus. Australia was turning completely secular. And in America, the Beatles claimed to be bigger than God. All right? And yet, what do we know now? Well, now there are more biblical Christians and there are more churches worldwide than ever before in human history. Get this. Evangelical Christian churches, evangelical Christians, the numbers of them, are growing faster than the rate of world population, significantly faster than the rate of world population. Turns out the doomsayers were wrong about Jesus' church. Okay, roll back to 500 years ago. 500 years ago, corruption, oppression from Rome was killing Christianity, and it was. Folks, church attendance in the late Middle Ages was incredibly low, much lower than today. Literacy was fading every year. In fact, there were a couple of centuries where the number of literate people got lower and lower every year, even though learning was growing in other ways. There, there, there were some observers, and I think they were probably pretty thoughtful in this, they were noticing that this new thing, the nation state was a new thing on the world stage. The, what we take for granted, you know, England, America, France, they, that was a new thing. And they predicted that these nation states were going to become so powerful that they would completely wipe out the ecclesia. The ecclesia would cease to exist. But all that only set the stage for one of the greatest movements in history, the Reformation. Because of the Reformation, every aspect of life on this earth has improved. And billions of souls have become part of Jesus' ecclesia. Go, go all the way, go further back, go all the way back to the beginning. Things were very dark back in the beginning, way back when Jesus' churches got started, right? Okay, so let's go all the way back to Acts chapter 2 and the beginning of the ecclesia. Uh, look to the right side of your notes. I wanted to give you a little brief summary of Acts chapter 2. Here is my one sentence summary of Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, Jesus' ecclesia is established by a powerful combination of Scripture, the Spirit, and solidarity. Scripture, the Spirit, and solidarity. Here's what happened. <clears throat> yeah, I'll tell you. In, in the year of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, at 9 a.m. on the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, God performed a miracle among the Jewish crowd that was gathered for the feast. Simon, now known as Peter, the rock, thanks to Jesus' nickname, Peter stands up and he preaches to this crowd, which just keeps growing and growing. We lack the time to examine it all today. I trust you will read Acts 2 on your own. Uh, in summary, here's what Peter does. He, he, listen, he quotes the prophets Joel and Isaiah and, and Zephaniah, and he quotes King David's Psalms. He quotes extensively from the Old Testament. Using Scripture, he reaches this conclusion, Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 36. He reaches this conclusion. Therefore, because of all the Scripture that he's quoted, and he quoted a lot of Scripture, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah. Do you see how the church is established on Scripture? 
Jesus is Lord. He is the King of all. He is Messiah, the promised Savior of the Old Testament. Peter is merely repeating what he said back at Caesarea Philippi before Jesus himself. Jesus is the foundation upon which he builds everything that's going to happen, and the church is about to be born. Look at how those Jerusalem Jews, those Jews who were in Jerusalem responded. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 2. It's like four books to the east in your Bible. Go to Acts chapter 2, and let's read 37 through 39. When they heard this, they came under deep conviction, the people did, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Repent, Jesus said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. People are smitten when they see the truth about Jesus. They cry out, what do we do? Peter says, change your mind about Jesus. That's what repent means. Repent means change your mind. And not in a shallow way like change your mind about what you're going to have for dessert. It's, it's much more serious than that. Repent means change your mind. In this, in this kind of usage, it means change your mind about Jesus. Believe him for who he really is. And look, be baptized in his name. That's a shocker. This is not merely a Jewish ceremonial baptism to make one clean. No, no, this, this is a sign of internal change, a, a change brought about by Jesus. Further, Peter promises that God's Spirit will indwell each individual. You, you're going to have, Peter says, what Joel prophesied. Peter discussed this earlier in his speech. You're going to have a permanent... Folks, I can't overemphasize this enough. This had never happened in all of human history. Joel had prophesied it, but Peter says it's about to happen. You're going to have a permanent connection with God through His Holy Spirit. That, that has never been before, but believers in Jesus are going to be sealed with God's own Spirit. And notice that, that Peter mentions the promise there in verse 39. You see that? He's very likely thinking back to that day at Caesarea Philippi. When, when Jesus first used ecclesia, it was a promise. It's a promise for all whom the Lord calls to build his church. Now, look at the results on that first day. The first day, that very first gathering, chapter, 41, uh, chapter 2, 41 and 42. So, those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Wow. 3,000 responded to the good news of Jesus and joined his ecclesia. You know, I read that and I think that unless we add over 3,000 people in one day, we probably should stop complaining about our churches getting too large. Just a thought. Um, scripture doesn't seem to give room for that. Notice the solidarity here. The togetherness is just awesome. I want to show you one particular word. Proskartoreo. Proskartoreo is the word we translate devoted. Um, it, it, Today, we think of devotion as an emotional, hopelessly devoted. That's what we think. You know, we think, we think of this emotional devotion. That's not what proskartoreo means. This is, this is a dedicated, relentless term. It means to persist, to persist in holding fast to something or someone important. And the scripture tells us they persist in serving each other. Let me give an example. This was recently posted by a lady from our church. Uh, she wrote this. She said, there's a stooped old man who shops in our store fairly regularly. He doesn't carry much because his crumpled body can't hold much. He's never bought anything from my department. She works in the, in the florist department. But today he came directly to me. And with a firmness I've never seen in any of his sweet passing greetings, whispered as loudly as he could, I need the prettiest bunch of lilies that you can sell me. Today is our 66th wedding anniversary. I want to make sure my bride has the nicest ones. That 
is persistence. That's the kind of devotion being described in Acts 2.42. That is the DNA of Jesus' church. That is how we build to last, with Scripture, with the Spirit, and with solidarity. Read together, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, all together. Let's read it together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Acts 2.42 introduces us to the very first actions of Jesus' ecclesia. This is the plan that God inspired in our forefathers. They are devoted. They are holding fast to Scripture. The first Christians stood on the truth despite serious opposition, serious cultural upheaval. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, that becomes a hallmark of servant leadership that goes all throughout the New Testament. If you want to be a real leader, you've got to devote yourself to the Scripture. From them, we can learn how to hold ourselves. We can learn how to, how to hold on and stand on God's word. Secondly, they are growing together. You see that they join each other. The first Christians were dedicated to fellowship with each other, breaking of bread. That means sharing meals and needs with each other. Growing together is not easy. It was not easy then. It's not easy now. God calls Christians to establish genuine community with the Lord and with, and with family and with the church and with society. But this requires, folks, this requires two very rare traits. Real community requires two traits, and they're both really rare. Love and discernment. But by God's Spirit, even though we greatly lack both of those, by God's Spirit, you and I can grow in love and discernment. We can. And thus, we can learn to practice real community. We can, we can join with each other, just like they did. Thirdly, that first ecclesia in Acts 2, they are yielding to God. <clears throat> those Christians built something that lasted because they were submissive to the Lord. That's what prayer means. The, the Hebrew words and the Greek words we translate prayer, they all just mean one thing, to ask because you are dependent. That's what it means, to ask because you are dependent. That is completely different than, than paganism. In paganism, prayer is a formula that you do exactly rightly so you can get the God to do what you want the God to do. It is not a statement of dependence, even though it may pretend to be. Biblical prayer is about dependence on God, the Holy Spirit. However, living by the Spirit is possibly the most difficult skill to explain. It is certainly one of the hardest to master. Here's what happens. Our insane pride makes yielding really difficult for us. But, but when we recognize our paltry lack of power, then we are positioned to embrace God's grace that is expressed to us in His very present Holy Spirit. Yielding to that Spirit, we, we are then ready for real, lasting impact. My old acquaintance, um, <clears throat> oh, let me come back to that. I have an old acquaintance I want to read you about. Let me tell you this first. Here's the theme for our study. That takes us to the theme for our study. This is what the study is all about. Very first Christians, very first church approached this new ecclesia with wonder and with wisdom. They were very wise. They adopted three practices that we should all emulate. Number one, Hold, number two, join, number three, yield. Let's say them together. Number one, hold. Number two, join. Number three, hold. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Join, they grew together as members of this ecclesia, this new covenant fellowship. Three, they submitted to the, leaders, to the Spirit's leadership. Now, my old acquaintance, Ken Gangle, said this, and I really like his quote. He says, at various times in Acts, especially in the early chapters, Luke gives summary reports of how the church is doing. Here, in Acts 2.42, we have the first. And in it, our author describes what a biblical church really looks like. Not only in the first century, but in every century from the Lord's ascension until his second coming, close quote. Acts chapter two shows us the way to sustainable building. 
Look at the similarities of these traits. Look at them. Acts chapter 2, ecclesia practice, holding fast to the apostles' biblical truth, joining together as members of ecclesia, yielding under the Spirit's influence. Now we begin to understand why Sir Garfield Weston built on those three principles. Remember his three principles for a successful business? Solid, unshakable core business, practices centered on serving others, and humble willingness to learn and adapt. Gee, I wonder where he got that. And now we better understand why I have observed one of these three factors in every shipwrecked Christian unbiblical theology, isolation from service or fellowship, and self-assurance. All right, so with all that in mind, how are we doing? Let's not just be hearers of God's word, let's be doers of it. Let's, uh, let's take a quick personal assessment. Look in your notes. On the right-hand side, you'll see that I have given you a personal assessment. I would like everyone to get something with which to write. If you don't have a pen, as I have said before, the lady next to you has six in the bottom of her purse, they're in one special compartment, although her children have used them. They put them in other compartments. Just search through. You'll find them. Four of them say Frisco Bible Church on them, which is great, by the way. We love that. Leave them at your doctor's office, your place of business. Feel free to share them. All right. Reach over. Katie, have you shared pens with the people around you? Thank you. Very good. Okay. All right. Everybody get your pens. I want you to answer true or false to each of these questions. Now, listen carefully to this. If your answer is mixed, many of mine were when I, when I took this. If your answer is mixed, put true. That, that, it, that is to say, if, if the question is partly true for you, partly not true, even if it's just a little true, mark it as true, okay? Question number one, true or false? I sometimes skip church. I sometimes skip church when the series or the teacher doesn't interest me. Put true or false. Number two, I do not know the names of those who regularly sit near me in church. I don't, I don't know their names. I mean, I asked them two years ago, and I didn't remember. Now I'm embarrassed. I don't know. Okay, true or false? Number three, I have one or more areas of sin that I just excuse as my normal. Oh, that's, just, that's just who I am. True or false? Number four, I am rarely convicted by a Bible text. I mean, Teflon. Just it, it, rarely, very rarely convicted by a Bible text. Number five, my only buddies in life. Now, now there are three kinds of friends in life. There are acquaintances, uh, people you just see and talk about the cowboys and the weather, and then there, there are buddies, people you do things with, and then there are friends that you share deepest thoughts with. Buddies, we're talking about buddies here. My only buddies, people I do things with, are, are non-Christians or pretty unhealthy Christians, okay? That's my only buddies. Number six, I usually feel strained when doing good deeds. I, I, I do good deeds, but I just feel strained. True or false? Number seven, there are parts of the Bible I think are wrong or parts of the Bible I think should not be studied today. Shouldn't be studied today. I think they're just wrong. Number eight, true or false, I have no one with whom I am totally honest. Genuinely honest. Number nine, I have little or no desire to pray, unless I'm in danger. Okay, except when I'm in danger, I really just don't want to pray. Number 10, true or false? I hide the fact that I'm a Bible-believing Christian. Right? I, I hide that I'm one of those people that believes in the Bible. Number 11, true or false? The mistakes and sins of others bother me more than my own. Mistakes and sins of other people bother me more than my own mistakes and sins. <laughs> Go ahead and just put true. That's fine, yeah. 
I, I see your face. Yeah, number 12, I frankly doubt God's ability to lead me better than I can lead myself. I mean, just to be honest, I frankly doubt that God can lead me better than I can myself. Number 13, when uncertain about the meaning of a Bible text, I never seek educated help. And Google is probably the, the, what I turn to, or my three-year-old, right? Actually, three-year-old might be pretty good. Um, uh, I never seek educated help. Number 14, I am not committed to a Christian life group or, or some ongoing position of service uh, in the ecclesia, in the church. I, I might do ad hoc things. I'll do this for a little while or I'll go to that for a little while, but I'm not, there's no ongoing place of connection or service. True or false, number 15, I do not experience God's empowerment. You know, Pastor Wayne will talk about uh, operating by the Holy Spirit instead of by our flesh. I don't, I, I have never experienced that. I don't, that doesn't make any sense. Number 15, true or false, All right? In your notes, you will see a guide for the scoring. You may have noticed they run into three different categories of answers. So you're gonna see how many true you got in each grouping. Uh, the first grouping is numbers one, four, seven, 10, and 13. So write down how many you got true in one, four, seven, 10, and 13. Okay, write it down. The second grouping is 2, 5, 8, 11, and 14. How many did you get true in that one? 2, 5, 8, 11, and 14. It's not hard. Just write 5. It's pretty easy. Okay, <laughs> number, the third grouping is uh, your prime 3, 6, 9, 12, 15. 3, 6, 9, 12, 15. How many true there? Now, it's probably evident to you from the questions that it would be wonderful for every single Christian to score false on every one of these questions, Right? However, that is very unlikely if you're honest in your assessment. At least the, the 100 people through whom I piloted this survey, who very committed Christians, none of them scored false on every question. Let me tell you what my analysis is of this. If you scored two or more on any section, two true or more on any section of the assessment, you, you need to work with the Lord according to that powerful Acts 2 combination, Scripture, Solidarity, and Spirit. Any true answer indicates an area of need. But if you've got two or more in one of those three categories, that, then that represents a serious problem, it, at least if you wish to see your life and your church built to last. You need to work on hold, join, yield. In your notes, you'll see that we close with a recommended personal plan. I wanted to put this in your notes so you could have it to take with you. Let's cover it real quickly. If I went through this and find that I'm weak at holding fast to truth, I have three recommendations for you. Number one, engage now in a genuine Bible study or discipleship group. Do it now. Sign up today. Number two, commit to weekly worship at a Bible-centered church. Truly Bible-centered church. Now, I know we have people study with us. You guys study with us from all over the world. And I recognize that in some places that is more difficult than others. But thankfully, in this day and age, just about everywhere in the world, you can find somewhere not too far away where you can genuinely worship the Lord according to Scripture. Third thing, I recommend you start a conviction list. This is something that I do. I recommend it to you. And I would recommend these three areas. Look out for these three areas. Areas where I'm weak in execution or application. I might, I might interpret the Bible well. I might observe it well. I might see what it says. I might interpret it well and, and understand the truth. But I'm pretty bad at applying it to myself. I'm okay at applying it to Diane, but I'm not as good at applying it to me. And there are certain areas in life, certain themes in Scripture that I'm more likely to do that. Start keeping track of those. 
Second area to keep track of is areas where I might be misunderstanding or misinterpreting the scripture. Usually these are culturally based. It's something that I want to be more like the culture because I like that and so I want to change the scripture. Watch for those, all of us have them. And then uh, the third one is areas where I try to rewrite the Bible. Please don't kid yourself. Every Christian I've ever known has five gospels. Five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Wayne. Everyone has their own gospel. We don't mean to do it, but subconsciously, we take the parts of Jesus we like, and we throw out the parts we don't like, and we make up our own gospel. It's horrible for our spiritual health. It is blasphemy. It's awful, but we tend to do it. Watch for that. See the areas where you do it. Keep track. Second area we talked about was joining together. If I'm weak in joining together, growing together, then number one, I should engage now in a life group or a ministry. Start serving somewhere, start finding people to grow up with. Number two is very important, it goes right on the heels of number one. Just determine that you're gonna stay involved even though I wanna make a prediction to you. You will find that those people are horrible. They are, they are as stinky as you because they're human, all right? And right now, even if they know Christ, they are not completely changed. They still have a flesh. And you're going to eventually find that they hurt you or let you down. If not, you haven't really joined. Okay, that's just how it is. Determine right now that you are going to persist in growing together. Number three, find at least one someone who is appropriate and healthy for each level of human interaction. I mentioned earlier three levels of human interaction. I gotta give a quick, um, I gotta give a quick um, point on that, um, a little balance. That is not necessarily in the scripture. Uh, that's Aristotle, okay? I, I apologize, that's Aristotle, but I think he's right, okay? Aristotle said there's three levels of people. He actually called them acquaintance, drinking buddies, and friends. Um, but you can leave the drinking out, just acquaintances, buddies, and friends. Find somebody who's healthy at each level. Don't poo-poo acquaintances. They matter. They, they, for a healthy life, you need people with whom to talk about the weather, who just notice when you're there or not. You also need buddies with whom you do stuff, and you need at least one of those to be healthy, and you need somebody who is a real friend, a godly friend with whom you can share dreams and wounds and defeats and wonders. Thirdly, hold, join, uh, hold, join, and thirdly is yield. If I am weak at yielding to God, my question showed true on that one, then number one, engage now in a weekly time of prayer. And if I can make a suggestion, make it at church. Here's why I say that. If I'm unwilling to go sit out and for a minute or two pray in the prayer hall at church, I'm probably not gonna pray anywhere, right? If I won't pray at church, I probably won't pray anywhere. Secondly, commit to a daily time of set prayer and surrender. John Wesley wrote extensively about this very quickly. Wesley was wrong. He was wrong about having to work to keep one's salvation, to keep one's justification. He was flat out wrong about that. But don't throw the baby out with the Wesley bath. He was right about discipline as a means to grow in salvation, discipline as a means to grow in your sanctification. Um, his advice was to set a schedule for yielding to God, uh, and, and it works. By the way, that's why his followers were called Methodists, because they followed methods and how, how to yield and pray to God. So find your daily time. You need to do the same thing. So do I. Mine, by the way, is first thing in the morning. I get up, fall on my knees by my bed, and I declare my surrender to the Lord and talk to Him. Find yours. Number three, if I'm weak at yielding to God, I must keep track of these three areas. The areas where I'm most likely to sin. Everybody has them. What's your sin tendency? The areas where I try, watch this, where I try to do good, 
But I do it from my own flesh. I don't do it in some kind of yielding to God's Holy Spirit or where I slip into self-reliance, which is just a form of pride. We're gonna develop all this more in the coming days. I just wanted to get this before you right now. Speaking of praying and yielding, let's surrender to the Lord in prayer right now, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, I pray for anyone studying with us today who is not a believer in Jesus. I wanna pray this first of all, that you will do what you do in Acts 2 in their life. That you, will, that you will open their eyes to repent, to change their mind, to understand who Jesus really is. Folks, he is God, the Son of Man. And he, and he loves you. And you don't have some kind of cosmic scale that weighs your good versus your bad. Oh, be grateful for that. Because that, while that sounds fair, it's certainly not merciful or good for you. You see, you are inveterately a sinner. It's a fact. And God is holy. And he can't just blink, wink, wink, nod, nod, and say it's okay. That sin has to be paid for. God can't allow you, him, in your sinfulness. You can have no relationship with him forever unless that sin is removed. And so Jesus paid for your sin on the cross. He died so that everyone who trusts in him could have their sin removed. Believe on him right now. If you just believed on the Lord Jesus, raise your hand. Raise your hand, I wanna rejoice with you. Good for you, amen. Father, I pray for all of these believers in Christ that plans will be made and plans will be followed so that every one of us can build to last, that we will hold and we will join and we will yield. In Jesus' name, amen.